Good afternoon. Good afternoon. <laughs> Welcome to this, to Duke Chapel. I am Luke Powery, the Dean of the Chapel here. And so on behalf of the entire Chapel staff, I offer a warm welcome, literally. And also I would say that today is a part of our bridge panel series, um, which are public conversations that aim to bridge people from various walks of life or disciplines um, to discuss um, issues of shared concern. And for those of you that are here, of course, you know that today's topic is sacred space and is a, a very important topic, not only for this campus, but I would say for this community, the nation and the world. And so as we begin today, and before I introduce our distinguished panelists, I wanted to offer a brief introduction to this session. Discovering and identifying sacred spaces has a long tradition in many faiths. How we understand and negotiate those claims about sacred space among different faiths is as important as ever at this time and in this place as events of this semester have made clear. As a Christian scholar, pastor in general and a Baptist minister in particular, I believe in the construction of buildings and the setting apart of spaces for worship. However, I do not place emphasis on any one space as more or less sacred than any other because all of life under the aegis of God is sacred. The Christian church for me is not bound by a building or an institution. The brick and mortar of the house of God is the people of God who are the living stones, a breathing temple of the Holy Spirit gathered in fellowship and worship. That being said, I believe that all space is God's space and is therefore sacred space, always prepared and ready to serve God's greater redemptive purposes in the world. I look forward to hearing what our panelists have to say about this topic today through their lenses of their particular faith traditions, experiences, and expertise. But I want to take a moment to speak about one sacred space in particular. In this case, if you didn't realize it, we are in a sacred space right now. The chapel is a fitting place to have this conversation for a number of reasons. But certainly one of them is that this building, Duke Chapel, is an example of various understandings of sacred space. It is treated as a sacred space in at least three different ways. So this is by no means exhaustive. First, it is the icon of Duke University. University ceremonies in the chapel bookend an undergraduate student's time at Duke. Convocation, and baccalaureate are the alpha and the omega of the undergraduate experience, and those occur in this building. Over the course of four years, a Duke student will likely spend at least two hours in this building contemplating who he or she will become or has already become. 
a student will hear the, the chapel carillon toll at five o'clock every weekday as he or she walks to and from class. Duke students will see the chapel often, both in person and in countless images, and perhaps even attending university concerts or special lectures in this building. In short, the chapel is seen as sacred by some in the Duke community the way a flag can be considered sacred, as a powerful symbol of pride and belonging, of shared experience and honor. Second, the chapel is also, of course, a space for Christian worship. We are sitting right now in the area we call the chancel. During worship services, this is where ministers pray. The choir sings, scripture is read, the organist plays, and Lord willing, the preacher delivers an effective word to the congregation. On Sunday mornings, we are joined in worshiping the God revealed in Jesus Christ by more than 500 people from campus and the community. This doesn't even include the thousands that watch us online or on television or listen on the radio or attend Easter and Christmas Eve services. If you have ever been here on a Sunday morning, you know what a majestic, inspiring time it can be. And this Protestant hour of music, preaching, and liturgy is still the most public face of Duke Chapel. It is the great towering Christian church James B. Duke envisioned. And Sundays are not the only time Christians come here to worship. People are also busy praying in the chapel almost every other day of the week. Prayers are offered in this space, are made here for brides, grooms, students, faculty, staff, and alumni. Prayers are made here for leaders and laborers, patients and healthcare providers, and I don't doubt for sports teams. In this way, the chapel holds a Christian confessional identity while welcoming rich and charitable dialogue with other religious communities. The chapel functions as the convener for more than two dozen religious life groups consisting of a wide variety of religious traditions, including Jewish and Muslim. Thus, thirdly, the chapel is also a sanctuary of hospitality and care in which office, meeting, and worship spaces are provided for numerous religious groups. This building is a university chapel and we serve the entire Duke community. Often when I walk through the main sanctuary throughout the day, any time of day, morning, noon, or night, I probably will find someone who's sitting by themselves. Who is he or she? I don't know. Is this a person of Christian faith, a person of another faith, a person of uncertain faith or no faith in God, a high church, low church, or no church, I don't know. What is on their hearts and minds? What has brought them to this space? I don't know, but I am grateful that this human being, this child of God, created in the image of God, has found, has found this building to be a place of refuge a sacred space set aside from the busyness of life where prayers can be lifted and joys and pains contemplated in peace. I believe the Christian community whose home 
is here at the chapel is and is called to be even more profoundly a convener of conversations such as this one today. And we are also called to be a blessing to this university, this city, the nation, and the world. And so I welcome you, and most of all, I welcome our distinguished panelists. Starting from my far left, we have Dr. Ellen Davis, who is the Amos Reagan Kearns Distinguished Professor of Bible and Practical Theology at the Duke Divinity School. Next to her, we have Dr. Omid Safi, the director of the Duke Islamic Center at Duke. Next to uh, Omid, we have Ms. Rebecca Simons, the director for Jewish life at Duke. And closest to me, we have my colleague here in the chapel, Dr. Christy Lorsap, the associate dean for religious life. And so, as a way to begin our conversation together, I posed a couple of questions to the panelists to ponder as they prepared for this afternoon session. And I would like them to take a few moments to help us think about, from their own perspectives, this first question. What is sacred space? Ellen? Thank you, Dean Powley. I have never spoken from this place in this building before. Am I audible in, for those of you at the back? Okay. I have three, maybe four comments to make on what is sacred space. First, um, it, it is an inherently ambiguous notion because sacred space is interpreted space. It's symbolically interpreted space, which is to say sacred space means something, um, but its meaning refuses to be rationalized. You can't exactly measure it. Um, moreover, as symbolically interpreted space, it is easily interpreted in a variety of ways, perhaps necessarily interpreted in a variety of ways. Second, sacred space is an ambiguous notion because it is affectionately, maybe passionately regarded space. It is space that is held and beheld in our hearts. Another way of putting that is it is space with a history, a history for both communities and individuals, uh, my own first encounter with the notion of sacred space was in Jerusalem. And so I'm particularly aware that many sacred spaces have a variety of histories uh, with different groups. And those histories might be sequential or they might be parallel and overlapping. So for all of these reasons, Sacred space is especially susceptible to disagreement, which is to say sacred space is perhaps inevitably at some point contested space. I'm guessing anyone who's ever planned a wedding in Duke Chapel knows that this is the case. <laughs> um, yeah. And so in retrospect, as I think about, about the events of recent weeks, 
It strikes me as quite amazing that as far as I know, there has been relatively little disagreement about sacred space on this campus until recent weeks. Um, and maybe that's why this controversy took a number of us by surprise. Um, and one final point is that, as I say, sacred space is symbolically interpreted space and symbols very rarely stand alone. So the prayer call discussion, for instance, entails discussion about symbolic space, but also about symbolic language. And as a discussion about symbolic language, verbal and nonverbal language are involved and in how both of those interact with the notion of sacred space. Thank you. Thank you, Luke. Thank you, friends, for uh, sharing this time and space together. Um, this sacred space is one that is quite meaningful to me in multiple ways. My own Duke education began here with Maya Angelou and um, my dear friend and mentor, Bruce Lawrence, whom I see back there, welcoming us to Duke. Um, my graduation ceremony was here. And there was another sacred ceremony, my marriage, which also took place um, right in the back of where you all are, are sitting. Uh, in the late 1980s, uh, a small handful of Muslim students who also sought a place to pray on campus were given permission to pray in the crypt right downstairs, an experience which was medieval, awesome, and slightly spooky. At the, at the same time. Um, and I've heard uh, gospel choirs, I've heard extraordinary music, and I've also heard the Quran chanted inside this sacred space. For Muslims, there is an awareness that the totality of the earth is sacred. The Prophet is known to have said that the whole earth is a mosque, is a place of prostration. But there's also this awareness that we bring sanctity to spaces, that stone and clay in and by themselves are not inherently sacred, that it is when we invoke the presence of God that we create sanctity in a place. Uh, that is very much in accordance with what we hear luminaries of other traditions people like Rabbi Heschel saying that holiness is not given to us, it's created by us. And within the Islamic tradition, there's this fine distinction that's sometimes made involving a pun in Persian between the word for stone and clay, gel, and the word for heart, del. And there's this prioritizing of the experience of God in one's heart. It's putting the human being back at the center of how we come to access God. And the notion of sacred space becomes those spaces in which a community of human beings come to recollect, to remember who we are by remembering who God is. When we do that and where we do that, then that space becomes a sacred space. And exactly as Ellen said, looking around the world, 
we see humanity and divinity mingling, and we also see beauty and sanctity and pain mingling. So virtually every place that is a sacred space, whether it's a sacred space that's shared and claimed by multiple communities like Jerusalem, or even sacred sites that are primarily the experience of one community like Mecca, are both sacred spaces that open us up to the divine and places that we also come to grapple with the real experience of suffering. And so it is on this campus as well. And I think the last thing that I would say is that in speaking and thinking and praying and existing in sacred spaces today, and if we think about what it is defined against, one of the challenges of contemporary life and whatever is outside and beyond of sacred space is a model of existence, whatever we wish to call it, secular life, which not so much challenges those of us who wish to live faithful lives as to make God an option. It makes God irrelevant unless we choose to make God relevant. And that's, I think, one reason why for many of us, if we wish to see ourselves as people of God, I think this notion of where our commonalities are is also an important point to keep in mind. Thank you. Um, when posed with the question, what is sacred space, I chose to um, do something that in the Jewish tradition we do often, which is refer back to the text. And uh, I looked at Exodus chapter 25, and this is the time where um, the Lord uh, tells the people, tells Moses to tell the Israelites, go and build the tabernacle, and provides explicit instructions as to what types of materials, how big, um, the measurements, etc., about what the tabernacle should look like. And through this story, what comes about is, is that the people need sacred space, but the reason they need sacred space is as a reminder that they must connect with God's divine presence. So indeed, it is not the space itself of the tabernacle that allows the people to connect with God. It is the reminder that they as people need to feel God. Um, in fact, that says that indeed when the people build the tabernacle, that God will dwell within them, not within it, not within the object of the tabernacle, but within them, the people. As such, the tabernacle serves as the central structure between man and God, but most importantly between God and the community. So the space, the physical space, takes on the importance of the being the center of the community physically, spiritually, and communally. As such, what does that mean for us today? I think that sacred space is our reminder. Being in a space that we have deemed sacred is a reminder that it is indeed the people who make the space sacred, not the space itself. The space without the people is no longer holy. It is the people who bring the sanctity to the space. Um, I think there is also an important concept within the Jewish tradition to share, and I'm also going to quote Rabbi Heschel, who says that the sanctity of time came first, the sanctity of man came second, 
and the sanctity of space last. And it is this construct, construct of space that we as people need to help us uh, connect with God's divine presence, but in reality, it is the people who make the space holy. Sorry, making a note. Um, thank you all. I, um, I want to dwell for a minute in some of the things that have already been raised up in terms of this idea of the sacred, um, whether it be sacred space or sacred time, being something that we set apart, um, the, the intentional setting apart of space or time, and how and question whether that um, has a different value or emphasis placed on it, whether we do it corporately or individually. And so I think what that implies for me is a question of the sacred being something that is universally held versus something that's personally held. And I find myself wondering whether even our relationship to that word sacred and that sense of sacredness has changed over centuries. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about how I was raised personally in relation to a sense of space and sanctuary in a church. And um, there were things that I was taught you just don't do in church, for example, um, eat food other than Eucharist. Um, I was not allowed to bring a snack bag to church, for example. But yet, now a regular part of my retinue for coming to church is taking a bag of goldfish. Um, because it is in part a means of pacifying the children and keeping them quiet during this. And so that causes me to question, um, have we as a society, do we hold as a society a same sense of what we deem sacred and how we interact in sacred space? Or has that shifted over time um, in a way that is um, either helpful or, or problematic for some of us? Um, but, but dwelling in this sense of what we hold to be sacred being that which we set apart as, as different or other, or perhaps using, um, Omid, your, your imagery, what, what we hold in our hearts and what tugs at our hearts maybe in a particular way that other spaces or places don't. Um, and so wondering what, what that can contribute our conversation here today. Mm, thank you. Thank you. Um, one thing, I have a, a question that I, it's sort of a common theme that um, I've heard um, here is the absence of a particular word in this conversation about sacredness or sacred space is normally we hear um, at times and not to feed into a kind of bifurcation or bipolarity of language, but um, in this conversation of sacred space, um, is there such a thing as profane space? Or is anything profane? We normally hear sacred and profane in a relationship, at, and, and I haven't heard that on your lips. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are to that. Is what is profane, if, if anything? I have to say my mind went to Martin Luther and his toilet. Um, that I'm would Lutheran be profane. Yeah. <laughs> but um, 
I, I'll leave that there. Sorry. <laughs> to anyone, this is. I I often. Oh, excuse me. I tend to avoid the word profane mm -hmm. because I think we see profane as being negative in 21st century English. Um, it, yeah. it literally just means before the temple. It means not within the sanctuary. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not how we hear it. And so I tend to use the word ordinary. Mm -hmm. um, so if one asks, is there such a thing as ordinary? space. Um, I tend, and I guess I want to say yes and no. Um, I'm inclined to think that space is something like what Christians call a sacrament. Mm -hmm. It's an, as my fifth grade Sunday school teacher said, an outward and spirit, an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. Um, and I think that if one can perceive some places as being sacred, then one can sense potential sacrality in other places, which might be akin mm -hmm. to what you were saying, Omid, in, in that the whole world is a mosque, is a place for prostration. Uh, similarly in the Psalms, uh, the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. Um, and the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So, so if there is, if space has a sacramental quality, then I think it enables us to see a potential sacrality to any place. But I don't think I entirely want to give up the idea of not a strict dichotomy, mm -hmm. but a distinction between, um, between the ordinary and something that is recognized at this time by these people as having a particular quality of sacrality. Hmm. You know, I would say um, in, within the Islamic imagination, nature is already sacred. In fact, nature is created as a sign, an ayah of, of God. Um, and even plants and animals are described as wholeheartedly submitting themselves to the will of God. A hippopotamus wakes up every morning going, it's a good day to be a hippopotamus. <laughs> giraffes wake up every day going, thank God I've been created as a giraffe. It's only the human. If there is a site of profaneness, it's only the human being in all of the cosmos that occasionally, and in our case, every day, fails to live up to its cosmic destiny. We're intended to be the mirror of God on earth. We're intended to bring into presence divine qualities and to be a steward of creation. Every now and then we live up to that, and far too often we live out a kind of existence that makes the rest of creation stare in bewilderment. What kind of creature is this? Um, we've got a lot of work to do mm -hmm. to live up to our own cosmic destiny. Rebecca, you wanted to? I think what comes to mind for me when you say profane is the concept of being unclean. Um, and specifically as it relates to space, I think of the cemetery that when coming out of the cemetery, there's a Jewish custom that you should wash your hands because you've been in unclean space. Um, but it's not a dichotomy between unclean and holy. 
or sanctified because everything that is happening in that space of the cemetery is indeed holy and that person for whom you are there is holy and their memory is holy. So I think of unclean, but not necessarily profane. Christy, did you have anything you wanted I, I to speak to I have a lot that? of thoughts swirling in my mm -hmm. head, both around the concept of, of prof, not profanity, but uncleanness um, versus ordinary, looking at the at different ways of looking at the word. Um, and taking your concept of, or Heschel's concept of time mm -hmm. um, and applying that to a sense of ordinary makes me think of the Christian liturgical cycle and we have we have time in the calendar that is set aside as as ordinary um, and time that is set aside as as differently designated um, perhaps we would say sacred although I don't think we would suggest that ordinary time isn't sacred um, and so I'm, I'm thinking that through in my head of I like I do think profane carries connotations with it today that um, that set up these stark kind of dualistic ways of thinking of it but I like the, the sense that all time, even ordinary time, has a sense of sacredness to it. And um, I want to dwell with that a little more. Yeah. I think, Omid, when you um, talk about the human being as profane, or the way you framed it, it it's similar um, to what I would think of as perhaps the, the Christian understanding of sin, um, perhaps. Um, and the connection that all of you made in terms of the role that the human being plays in naming what is sacred or creating what is sacred um, or housing what is sacred. I'm wondering how, if, if human beings are sinful, profane, um, unclean, <laughs> How, what does that mean for our designations of what um, we consider to be sacred or not? I mean, how, how does that play into it? Do we, do we get it wrong? Is there a wrong in terms of naming certain things sacred and when it may be not or because of our own human frailty um, and shortcomings? Yeah, so, um, you know, I think when we're speaking of God's relationship to nature and to humanity, we can use all the common metaphors of God is like sunshine, shining without favor and distinction upon all equally. We know that our human societies are hierarchical. There are elements of justice and injustice in every single one of our societies, in areas of race, gender, class, sexual orientation, others. And so if we're asking some of these questions of sacred space, and if all of us are somehow in agreement that it's not so much spaces which are inherently sacred, but human beings who bring that sanctity to them, then we have to ask the next question of who organizes sacred space? How is space organized? And how is the power, wealth, privilege that is a part of our human societies reflected in how we come to allocate some spaces as sacred and others as not? Mm -hmm. Who has access to them? And these are not um, theoretical and hypothetical questions. They have 
real-life ramifications. And I think I'll just say two quick examples. Is our model fundamentally a model of hospitality? Or is it one of citizenship? Is the notion that some of us own this house, and you're welcome to come to my house, as long as you leave in three days? Or is the notion that this is God's house, and we all are participants in it in, in equal measure? And then the other notion is, you know, clearly, and just speaking as a citizen of this particular country, as a place that I was born and I've gotten married in and I'm raising my children in, we're struggling with the issue of access to sacred sites. And in many different places, from Murfreesboro in Tennessee to the so-called Ground Zero Mosque, which was neither a Ground Zero nor was it a mosque, um, to examples of vandalism within this last week, everywhere from Houston to Rhode Island to Washington State, to Washington DC, we find many people whose understanding of God, the sacred and sacred space leads them not to do justly, love mercy and walk humbly with their God, but rather into a mantra of not in my backyard. And I think we have mm. to be very careful when we start to equate these ideas and these concepts with individuals or groups of individuals. Um, for example, I, um, I, I'm thinking of the Dalit um, people in India and, and the oppression that has been put upon them because they've been perceived as being unclean and untouchable and, and the caste system in which they mm -hmm. operate oppressing them um, and then creating these dichotomies that, that render them um, untouchable and cast off and marginalized in society. And, and the cultural awareness that comes with that claiming of what is sacred and what, um, what spaces are sacred. And, and even in our own country, um, when places that might have been deemed sacred by others but then were quite literally and, and metaphorically bulldozed by newcomers to this land. Um, and, and we see that over and over again in our relationship with native peoples and indigenous communities. and. Um, and so just an awareness of the, the need for caution and history and self-awareness and humility in this question of um, people in places being sacred versus profane or being unclean and untouchable. I think I want to qualify the idea of sacred space being humanly created or constructed um, because I think there is a sense, certainly in biblical tradition, in which sacred space is something that is recognized, and it's in part recognized because in that space God has come near. Hum humanity has recognized God as, as coming near. And I found, Dean Power, your, your comment, you're introducing the notion of sin mm -hmm. helpful. While I said that I I avoid using the term profane as over against holy. I think I might be willing to say that there are spaces, places that are profaned with a D on mm. the end. Um, and, um, and, and, or putting it another way, there are spaces, places that are sinned against. And maybe in our world, that is most places 
that I sinned against. And just to sort of follow that up for a moment, every place from a biblical perspective, every place is a creature because it is part of an order that God has created. Um, and, and certainly it is possible. And that suggests then that place, space, land, related, not identical terms, mm -hmm. but a place or a land can be violated by the human presence in it. Certainly this is the biblical understanding of, of what happens to the land of Israel, the land of Canaan that requires the expulsion of humans who can't live in it in a proper relationship with God. And the land is perfectly capable of having a proper, proper relationship with God in the absence of humans. Um, and so, at least in the temporary absence of humans. So I find the notion of, of place being sinned against perhaps one that needs some attention in our time. Mm, thank you. The question that um, is raised for me is that if we as people, if there is sanctity in people, then we as people can create sacred space anywhere without a physical, physical space to accompany it. So maybe that is out in the quad or um, someplace else on campus or across the world that there not necessarily need to be a sacred space previous to the presence of the community that is creating that space. And in looking at that, I, uh, I don't have the answer to this, but I reflect back on if we can create sacred space anywhere, what does that mean for the physical spaces we have? Right, and um, I guess to come even closer home, so from the macro level moving to the micro and thinking about some of these uh, questions that you've raised in relation to Duke's campus, I had asked the panelists to consider the question, what is um, sacred space or where is sacred space on Duke's campus? And let me frame the question this way and you may already have some thoughts um, is, and to piggyback a little bit on the language of what um, Dr. Davis uh, raised, this idea of an ordinary, and this may be a profane question. <laughs> is Duke Chapel ordinary? Do you care what we uh, We can feel free to take that or, um. or plead the fifth. Whatever. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it seemed to me, I, I said that sacred space is inherently debatable, contested space, so I know that what I'm about to say is debatable and contestable. Um, it seemed to me that perhaps the least debatable answers about where sacred space might be on Duke's campus are possibly the um, the synagogue, the sanctuary at the Freeman Center, and Goodson Chapel in the Divinity School at Duke. And I chose those two because they are spaces mostly, though not exclusively, dedicated to worship, as far as I know. But maybe I'm quite wrong about that, and you can correct me. Um, and that, as far as I know, and I'm more certain about Goodson Chapel, certainly, than I am about the Freeman Center, that they were built by and for 
one particular faith community, primarily. A more debatable answer would be a multi-purpose space such as this building, uh, which was built by and for the university and not by, the not by and for the United Methodist Church, as I recently heard a faculty member say. Um, and I would say, this is my church, um, I would say that Duke Chapel is sometimes sacred space, with, with different parts of it being sanctified at different times. And so just to parse that a bit, the nave, this part of the church, including that larger part, um, functions largely as a church, but also as Dean Powery says, it also functions as an auditorium for certain academic functions. And some of those academic functions are ambiguously religious. I think prayers are said at some of those primarily academic functions. Um, at graduation-related events, I believe a sermon is preached. Yes, at baccalaureate. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, another part of this space, the tower, it is, as Dean Powery has indicated, is our, it is our University Carillon and our bell tower. As far as I am aware, it functions as a distinctly church tower only on Sunday mornings when it performs the ordinary purpose of a church tower of ringing bells a few minutes before worship. Um, otherwise, the only time I can think of during the academic year that it functions, or perhaps during the year altogether, that it functions distinctly as a church tower is at Good Friday, on Good Friday in the afternoon when the bell is tolled 33 times. Um, and so our current thinking about this space raises the question in my mind, should it, should this tower also perform the ordinary, uh, the normal function, um, I think I prefer normal rather than ordinary in that context, the normal function of a minaret on Friday afternoon at noon. It seems to me this is a question that we are considering. And answering that question would entail asking another question, which is, does an explicitly verbal proclamation of faith from the bell tower, would that be a different act from the ringing of bells or the playing of carillon tunes? And so I think there's not, I think it's, it's a, simply a complex, it's not simply at all, I retract that <laughs> word. It involves a complex set of questions about symbols, verbal and non-verbal, distinctly sacred symbols and ambiguously, uh, and in some cases, distinctly secular uh, symbols. Yes, thank you. Anyone else from the panel would like to speak to that? There are a couple of things that come to mind. One, just to respond about the Freeman Center. I think indeed, yes, the Freeman Center and the sanctuary there was created as a home for the Jewish community. But the sanctuary itself 
takes on that um, persona of sacred space only when people are there for the purpose of a service. Um, and that often that space gets used differently and is defined by what is happening within. Um, in terms of your original question mm -hmm. about uh, the chapel, I think that among Jewish students, what I often hear is there is a perception of the chapel as being sacred Christian space that they are often unfamiliar with. And until they are able to identify with the chapel through some of the experiences that you mentioned and that mm -hmm. you mentioned as well, as part of their own experience, they are not able to see the um, breadth of possibility in terms of uh, sanctity and opportunity within the space because of the preconceived notions they come with, um, often, you know, based on uh, symbols that they've seen in the world. So the sanctity of the chapel for those individual students um, and the personal relevance is not seen until once they have experienced it because they have an association that indeed this is a Christian space because maybe the architecture or their historical perspective. So I think that sets us up in a different conversation and that that perception may often change over time once they've had personal experience. Hmm. One, of the, one of the comments that's been made um, often in the past couple of weeks, and you even alluded to this in your opening comments, is the, the chapel and particularly the tower as a university icon and as mm -hmm. being um, that way a sacred symbol for so many people. But I think we have to be really careful that we don't turn an icon into an idol. And icons are meant to provide a window into the divine. They're meant to be a way for individuals to focus their relationship to the divine and have a, a, a vision of the divine, but they are not themselves divine. And so we have to be very careful in, in reference to, to, to our tower in that space as, um, as, as not being itself an idol. And I, yeah, um, I, that's what I would say. Response to that. So, um, in, in thinking about this language of recognition that um, one recognizes the presence of God, if for me you recognize God in humanity, part of it relates to whom do we recognize. I think it's all fine and good and dandy to say everyone should be free to just go and build whatever building that they want. The fact of the matter is that there are many communities, and one here can think about Native people, African Americans, poor working students, whose background, whose communities don't have access to the same resources to go ahead and build a Duke Chapel or a Freeman Center. And in that case, is this still their home? If we at Duke continue to use this language of Duke is your home, you fully belong at Duke, how do we simultaneously acknowledge the differential of resources plus the insistence that this is still your home and you belong here as much as anybody else does. Part of, I think, how I think about this conversation of sacred space and the contestation of sacred space in the public discourse is a simple notion of 
how many communities, how many traditions get to have their contested symbols present in the public arena? Do we insist that no religious symbols be present in the way that occasionally you get in a French secular model? Do we insist that one and only one tradition get to be present in a public discourse? Or are we willing at the risk of being somewhat chaotic to say, we're gonna open up the public space so that everybody who is here can be recognized. And the goal is to somehow have a symphony of religious participation. And lastly, I think for me, what it comes down to is being mindful of the fact that there are these ambiguities. This place is obviously set up as a Christian church. I see the cross from where I'm standing right here. And at the same time, my dear brother here, Luke, if I'm not mistaken, you report to the Duke president. Yes. <laughs> and officially speaking, whatever congregation worships here is not a member of the Baptist Church, the Catholic Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, the Methodist Church. It's our Duke community. And somewhere within this beautiful space, there is a little contested statue of Robert E. Lee. And unless y'all are reading a very different translation of the Bible than I am, he was not an apostle of Christ, right? So how do we somehow account for our public space having a Christian heritage, but recognize the fact that we are now a very different community with Muslims, Jews, Hindus, Muslims, Taoist, atheist, secular humanist, and people that won't have anything to do with religion, all of them being here because we call Duke home. And I think more importantly for me, what's our ethic? Is it a language of fear or is it a language of love? And I think all of us can think of examples in our own religious traditions where we prioritized one over another. And there's plenty of fear in this world. I hope that particularly educational communities can be a place that knowledge and love and light can come into this world. Can I just add something to that? In terms of our ethic of um, space and space use, particularly in this space, um, I think another little wrinkle or facet in the conversation is, is what priorities for the space use are there? And it's not always worship or even Christian worship that is prioritized as use in this space. Um, one, of the, one of the number one complaints that I heard when I started this work um, several years ago was the number of times that Christian worship services were, quote, bumped from the chapel for an organ concert or a rehearsal. And um, so I think in that ethic of how we outline space as sacred and, and sacred use of it, we also have to be honest about that priority of, and those are questions of power and privilege and belonging as well, um, as much as questions of, you know, our, for, for non-Christians and use of this space. We're going to turn, make a turn now to some of your questions that hopefully you have written on a piece of paper. I think there are offering plates uh, not for money, but for your pieces of paper. 
and your thoughtful questions that might be raised to our panelists. Um, as that is happening, it's also something recently, thinking about Duke's campus and sacred space, I attended uh, the Duke men's basketball game against Clemson. And I heard for the first time an advertisement that was played, an audio that said, um, Cameron Stadium, a building with a soul. And so as we ponder sacred space on campus here, I think Cameron Stadium as well is deemed as a holy place uh, for many and not necessarily profane, but sacred. And so after we'll have some questions, we won't get to all of your questions, I'm sure. But what we're trying to do after our time here in this chancel area, we're going to invite you to continue the conversation with our panelists down in the basement in the chapel lounge. There are some refreshments there for you. So all of you are welcome to come when we move out of here to directly go to the lounge for further conversation uh, with our panelists. And the quickest way to get there, the best way would be to go out the door on this side and come around on the Bryan Center side and then come through the side door and enter the basement. So we have a question here, two questions at least, perhaps three. Can you speak to, and this is for all of the panelists, can you speak to mosques, churches, temples, sharing their worship buildings with those of another faith? Um, st statistics would be helpful. Um, I do not have statistics, but I can say that there is a long history um, in Judaism of sharing space, both being welcome in other spaces as well as welcoming others into the space. Um, when a while back when uh, Imam Abdullah Antepli was first hired here, mm -hmm. um, and it was Ramadan at the beginning of school, one of the first things we did was open the doors of the Freeman Center to the Muslim community here at Duke and welcome them in for Ramadan so that they would have a place to pray at that time. So there is a long tradition um, within Judaism of doing such in both ways, both directions. A couple of years ago, as I recall, and someone may remember the details better than I, I think there was a Baptist church in Greensboro that burned. Um, and I think it may have burned on a Saturday. And the, and the synagogue nearby opened their space and welcomed them in for an extended period of time. I don't know statistics either, but there, is, um, there are countless stories similar that are similar to that. Um, there's a beautiful story in Manhattan of a congregation, um, B'nai Jeshurun, who's, uh, who had a beautiful um, synagogue and the ceiling fell in one Friday, and they were welcomed by the local by the Methodist Church around the corner, St. Paul, St. Andrew. And um, this was at least 10 or 15 years ago, and they still worship there today because the congregation has grown such that um, they don't fit in the synagogue in the same way anymore. And so all of their Saturday morning um, services are held at the Methodist Church of St. Paul and St. Andrew, which now also um, provides a worship space for, I think, one or two local Muslim communities as well. Um, and it's just a beautiful story of that kind of interfaith cooperation. 
You know, if you take a look at all the studies that are done about what it is that actually propels us as a human community to be able to deal with one another in humanity, compassion, kindness, as opposed to fear, loathing, and ignorance, it's not your education level. All of us know plenty of bigoted professors, racist, sexist, homophobic professors. It is whether or not you know human beings face to face. There's something extraordinarily transformative that happens when we come to know each other face to face. And if so help us God, we can break bread together. That seems to somehow push us forward. Um, in, I mentioned in, in my comments about this rush of uh, attacks of vandalism uh, on, on mosques within this last week or two, there was the mosque in Houston that was burnt down, unfortunately. It was a case of arson. And uh, the response was actually really interesting. A n Christian neighbor who was horrified at this happening wrote publicly on the Facebook page of the mosque, I am so sorry that this has happened. I'm gonna make a whole bunch of BLT sandwiches and bring it over for y'all. Um, some of you are giggling and that's good. Um, so compassion, kindness, sacrifice, it's all good. Something about the BLT part um, needs a little bit of tweaking. And the mosque responded in the most beautiful, generous way, which was by saying, we're so grateful for your response. We know lots and lots of homeless people who live near us, and we're gonna distribute your BLT sandwiches among them. Those are the kinds of examples and encounters that we just need a lot more of. There's another question here um, that is, let me rephrase it just a tad. In thinking about Duke Chapel in particular um, as sacred space, is there a clash between the academy and a historical culture which sees itself threatened? And my read of that question, if you are looking at me, there's a sense, is there, we're in an academic setting, right, at Duke a place for mutual understanding and learning and conversation and the variety of perspectives on Duke Chapel as sacred space, but is there somehow a clash between a historical, quoting here, a historical culture which sees itself threatened? Who would like to jump into that if you... Can you name the historical culture? Yeah, that I don't feels know who asked it. This wasn't my question, right. but <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing, I, this is a guess, I don't know that there's a sense of the historical culture, perhaps the Christian culture. Christianity Christ is threatened by the presence of non-Christians? Do we, are you, I'm is not that the sure. spirit of the question? We, uh, my sense is the Christianization of the U.S. The, in that historical Christian um, presence, and those that might feel threatened by the presence, by of, the presence of, non of others or various perspectives. We're, you know, it, I think this is also getting at this idea of the town and the gown and, and we're, as it relates to even thinking about sacred space. Ellen? My, my guess is that that is an element of it, but I, but mm -hmm. I would not see that as the basic clash or right. point of 
division. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know within the Divinity School where almost all members of the faculty at the Divinity School are members of the historical culture that identify a Christian historical right. culture. Um, I know that there are different views about the controversy. Um, and so, and I also have, um, within the academic council of this university, have realized that for some people, the whole notion of sacred space is an incoherent notion. They simply do not have a way of thinking about about it, maybe because the very first thing I said is it's a notion that cannot be rationalized. It can't be measured, proven experientially. Um, and so, or empirically. So I think this, there may be an element of this. I mean, certainly there is a town gown phenomenon uh, mm -hmm. within this city, within our state, and a, some distrust and contempt uh, of, on both sides of that. But I think it's a much more complex kind of disagreement um, involved. Or, or in some cases, disagreement would, would suggest to settle the notion, a lack of comprehension of the issues, and we don't even know what questions to pose. Anyone else on that? Okay, maybe not. <laughs> there, there is a, a particular question. I, there's probably time for two more questions, um, and then I'll ask the panelists for a final word. Um, one question here that is particularly uh, directed to Professor um, um, Omid. Um, it says, can you particularly talk more about the feeling um, that students coming from less privileged and familiarity with an elite institution and its culture, how they might feel that the chapel and, uni and the university are not their space or sacred or not. So I think that follows up from some of your earlier comments. Um, say more about that. Thank you. Um, so, you know, you walk into this space and it is grand and it's majestic, um, awe-inspiring, overwhelming. That's not the background that many students who come to Duke necessarily identify as their own lived experiences. Not all of us have come from majestic, awe-inspiring backgrounds. We might have been raised by majestic people but doesn't mean that we all came from majestic homes, majestic communities, or majestic churches, mosques, and temples. For, for me, just speaking very anecdotally and personally, um, showing up at Duke as a 17-year-old child of immigrant parents who used to have majesty and wealth in Iran and then didn't have it moving to the States, um, this place was actually a regal space. It was a level of 
opulence and, and wealth, which was beyond anything that I was familiar with. Um, and I've told this story a few times before, even on Duke forms, there was no box for Muslim. There were 26 religions that you could identify yourself as, but there was nothing that recognized you as Muslim, or for that matter, recognized you as a member of a racial or ethnic community. So if we're talking about recognition, my initial experience was actually non-recognition. But institutions are like corporations. They're people, they and, and they have souls, and they, they evolve. And one of the things that I found very quickly is that you can stand outside the system and say, I don't belong here, this place doesn't speak to me, uh, and I'm too stubborn and too perseverant to have that mentality. So my sense is that Duke may not be my home yet, but it can be, and with the grace of God, it has become that. So that now when I speak of this we, this collective we, I find myself part of this community, and my concern is to make sure who else is on the margins? Who else is it that when they show up here, they might feel alienated and left out in some of the same ways that a much younger and thinner version of me would have done a few decades ago? Can I add something to that? Mm -hmm. um, first of all, we have Dr. Safi to blame for the fact that there are now 32 choices in that <laughs> drop-down box on the admissions form um, of religious preference. But people bring people bring their own histories and their own stories with them to this place. And so for those who have in any way felt marginalized or discriminated against or, um, or belittled by a Christian presence in, the wor in their world can project that onto this space and therefore onto this institution with this being the icon of the institution and the building that is the the um, referred to some as the heart of campus and I've heard that from students from so many different walks of life and different um, modes of being both religious uh, traditions um, gender identities sexual identities um, and I think as administrators we have to be aware of that um, that when students come to this place they see what they've encountered and what they bring with them and they then project that so that for me causes me to want to be more hospitable to those who have felt marginalized by something with which I'm affiliated, um, to reach out to them and say, hey, we're not that same institution that, that um, caused you to feel this way or that, to which you responded in this way. And I think just to clarify, and I hope that I was understood clearly and I spoke clearly about this, it's not Christianity or Christian community that made me feel marginalized or the Jewish community or any. It's, it's fear, it's loathing, it's ignorance, it's violence, it's racism. And if and when those overlap with any particular religious tradition, including my own, I'm going to feel left out and marginalized. But for some people, it is Christianity. That for some, it for, is. For some people's experience of Christianity, it yeah. has been marginalizing and belittling. Mm -hmm. There's one question here that I'd like you to think about, maybe answer it but we can also use that question as sort of the uh, focus toward whatever final comment you would like to make um, before we move to our um, the little reception in the basement. So the question is this, do you all agree that space is not inherently sacred?
I think I've already spoken to that, and that's maybe a little more unqualified than I'd <laughs> like to say. I think I'd be willing to say that space is not inherently sacred and exclusively sacred to one particular body. I'm, I'm not yet willing to say that there is no such thing as inherently sacred space. You know, when, when I read the Quran or the Bible on a, on a daily basis, um, I'm extraordinarily uncomfortable with, with passages that talk about God coming near. I don't, I don't know and I don't experience a God who comes from one place to another place. Those are anthropomorphic descriptions of a deity that for me is as pervasive as light and air. If there is a place that God is not in, that place is by definition non-existent already. It's a matter of recognition for me. And, you know, to quote for the second time from the great Muslim rabbi, Rabbi Heschel, um, you know, he, when, when he talks about that most majestic of religious qualities, something that ideally we experience in these sacred sites, that quality of awe, what in the Muslim tradition we would call taqwa. He says, you need three things, and these three things are always present. God, a soul, and a moment. Anytime that those three come together, for me, that has the making of a sacred space. I'm going to speak along those same lines. Um, I do not believe that a particular space is inherently sacred. I believe that what makes that space sacred is the experience that takes place there. Um, and for some, that is their connection to a divine presence. It, for others, it is being in community. Um, for some, it is a spiritual experience. So um, the space itself is not inherently sacred. It is what happens in that space that makes it sacred. With Along those lines, that means that the space may change for each individual. What was a sacred space previously may not be so in the future and what was not previously may be so. The mystic in me wants there to be sacred space in the world, and the Christian in me wants to recognize um, the incarnation of God in Jesus as God entering into the world and and um, and making the world sacred. Um, I think, therefore, the question for me begs more of a question about our posture and our openness to encountering God in our midst, um, be it in a beautiful building, a grove of trees, or the face of a friend or neighbor in need. Um, and so... This has been a wonderful beginning conversation about sacred space across various religious traditions. And the conversation does not end here. As I've said before, there is space and refreshments in the basement, in the chapel lounge to continue the conversation. Please go out um, this side, the transept doors around the building, and there's a side entrance to the basement. If you would like to join the panelists there, I know they would be 
willing to answer any questions. Can we thank our panelists this afternoon? One of the, the common threads I heard, I believe, underneath their comments, explicit or implicit, was even with the variety of understandings of sacred space, there is also a sense that sacred space um, is within humanity. A human, human life is sacred. Um, and so with that understanding, my hope and prayer as you go forward in this day and the days ahead is that that understanding of our sacredness, even as human beings, would shape our understanding of one another and our interactions with one another. Um, and to channel a saying of Dr. King, he said that one can affirm the existence of God with his or her lips, but deny God's existence with their life. And so my hope is that as you go forward, that your life would affirm the human dignity and sacredness of every person you meet. So go in peace and we'll see you at the next bridge panel.